Military murder is an independent project and is not endorsed by the Department of Defense or any military component. The views expressed are those of the host. The content of this podcast is not meant to be legal or medical advice. Warning, this episode contains graphic details of murder and is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, True Crime Army. I am your host, Margot, and this is a true crime podcast where I focus on crimes committed by military members and veterans. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen, I promise. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast, and if that's you, welcome home. If you're tuning in for the first time today, I would recommend stopping and going back to listen to episode 32 first, because this is part two of a two-part series. All right, last week I brought you part one of the murder of Private First Class Barry Winchell. In that episode, I brought you up to speed on Barry's life and his romance with Calpurnia Adams. Calpurnia was a transgender woman, but she was preoperative. Justin Fisher was Barry's roommate on post, and he had basically started a wicked rumor among the Delta Company soldiers that Barry was gay. To many, that might not seem like that big a deal, But in 1996, it was a big deal due to the Department of Defense's policy of don't ask, don't tell. Now, without further delay, I bring you the conclusion of Barry Winchell's murder. Listener discretion is advised. Now, let's dig in. My sources for this episode are identical to part one, so I won't get into them right now. Last time I left off on July 3rd, 1999, a hot summer holiday weekend in the barracks of Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Barry used to spend all of his free time with Calpurnia, his girlfriend, but this weekend he decided to stay back in an effort to both save money for the upcoming trip that his parents had planned in August to visit him for his birthday, and he wanted to study for the Soldier of the Month test. After a long, hot day of fooling around and drinking beer, Barry and 18-year-old Calvin Glover got into an altercation. Barry attempted to apologize to Glover, but Glover made a death threat that many disregarded as just boys being boys. Well, Barry went back into his room and Fisher continued to egg Glover on, asking him how it felt to get beat up by a By Sunday morning, July 4th, it appeared that all of the macho bravado had tapered down. Another barracks cookout, this time including a keg, ensued, and most of the same crowd showed up. Barry came down and saw Glover and offered him a peace offering, some cigarettes, And when that wasn't enough, he offered some Southern comfort. Glover wasn't so sure he wanted to make peace with Barry because he had Fisher in his ear, yep, 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 yapping away and making him feel like less than a man at the possibility that he got beat up by a gay man. However, as the booze began to flow, Glover began to warm up to Barry again. And Barry was such a likable guy after all, you know? They played wiffle ball bat and Barry even taught Glover how to juggle. Late that night on July 4th, Barry decided to call it a night. And this night he had dog duty. The soldiers had a dog, an Australian blue healer named Nasty. And every night a different soldier had dog duty. This particular night was Barry's turn. While most soldiers just welcomed the dog into their room, Fisher was not a big dog person. So in an effort to avoid any issues with his psychopath roommate, Barry decided to bring a cot to the open air hallway outside his room. Barry carefully folded three blankets and piled them on top of each other so they could act as a makeshift mattress. He placed a pillow to lay on, tied the dog nearby, and then he went to sleep. 
While Barry lay fast asleep, the crowd at the keg party dwindled down little by little as the keg was drained. At about 11.30 p.m., Fisher ran to the exchange to buy some liquor. There, he purchased two 40s, 40-ounce bottles of Old English 800 malt liquor. Fisher returned and reunited with Glover. By this point, Glover was 12 beers deep, and he swung the wiffle ball bat aimlessly. And then Fisher kept at it again, reminding him about the fight with Barry. Fisher was egging Glover on. You're going to let that guy kick your butt. You should do something about it. But he didn't use language like that. He used vulgar language. Glover, highly intoxicated by this point, began to feel himself get worked up. And Glover began to take his anger out on the empty keg, whacking it over and over and over again with the wiffle ball bat. The pair then moved the party of just two of them up to Fisher's room. And on the way into the room, they saw Barry fast asleep and they chuckled like little girls. Then they walked into the room, turned on the soundtrack to the movie Psycho, which (laughs) I'm afraid to know what that sounds like. But anyway, they turned that on and then they jammed out and continued to drink. Again, like a broken record, Fisher continued to egg Glover on. Fisher took out his Louisville Slugger, the one he purchased when he was back home in Nebraska a year earlier, and he just began swinging it around. They took turns with the bat, and then Glover swung the bat and said, I should go out there and kick his ass. Barry's eyes lit up. Then do it, he commanded. Glover, the erratic mess of a kid that he was, was like, yeah, yeah, you know what? I'm going to do it. And then he opened the door, walked outside, and closed the door behind him. Glover stood across from Barry's cot with that bat in his hand. He was nervous. What if he woke up? What if? What if? Just then, Glover raised the bat over his head and came down on Barry's head over and over and over again with such force that he drew blood with the first swing and the blood followed the bat as it splattered on the walls behind Barry and then reached 15 feet across. After three to five blows, Glover was covered in blood and the bat was covered in blood and Barry's face was unrecognizable. What I always wonder when I hear this story though is, what about the dog? Did the dog bark? Did he try to defend Barry? But in all my research, I never saw anything. Well, Glover walked into Fisher's room and said, I did it. Fisher was grinning from ear to ear, giddy almost. Fisher grabbed Glover and in his stupid mafioso tone said, we're family now, this stays in the family. Yeah, we'll see how long that lasts. They kind of embraced and Fisher grabbed the bat and began to rinse the blood off the bat. Glover began to wash the blood off himself and then he remembered that before he went outside to assault Barry, he touched a tin can that Barry had on his side of the bed and Glover tried to wipe the fingerprints off of it. Then Glover and Fisher went outside to assess the damage. Fisher saw Barry and he couldn't believe his eyes. Barry's face was unrecognizable. And then a bubble blew from the hole that should be Barry's nose. And Glover asked Fisher, is he dead? And Fisher said, yes. But they were wrong. Barry was still breathing. Then Glover and Fisher go inside and begin to figure out what they're going to do. They decided that they were going to dump Barry's body in a nearby river, but they need the car keys. So they start looking for Barry's car because Barry's one of the only soldiers in the barracks that has a car. But the plan is foiled when they couldn't find the car keys. So they pivot. They go back outside and Fisher looks at Glover and says, run. 
Glover was young and confused, and let's not forget dumb. So he stood there frozen, and then Fisher said it again, run! As Fisher frantically started giving an Academy Award performance for the ages, he started yelling, Barry! Barry, wake up, Barry! Oh my God, I think he's dying! And then he ran to pull the fire alarm. By this point, Glover was long gone. He ran off, and Fisher was running up and down the hallway, knocking on other soldiers' doors. But it was almost three in the morning, and they were all drunk and asleep. Fisher made his way to private first class Nikita Saranov's room. Fisher was yelling, Barry needs to go to the hospital now. Go get your car. And Nikita didn't know what was going on. But yes, 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 he was going to go get his car. So Nikita ran to get the car. Meanwhile, soldiers were waking up. Originally, the soldiers thought some drunk soldier pulled the alarm. But after they heard the commotion, they began to gather around Barry's body. Private Christopher Matthew arrived on scene and he was trained as a combat lifesaver. So he wanted to assess the wounds and he asked Fisher what happened and Fisher didn't say anything. By this point, the soldiers were trying to call 911 from the barracks room and the number wouldn't dial. We later discover that for some ungodly reason, soldiers living in the barracks did not have a connection to 911. So they could call anywhere else, just not 911. What in the actual hell? This makes me so furious. So, of course, Barry needed emergency care ASAP, but it took over an hour, an hour for the ambulance to arrive on scene. When the first responders arrive about an hour after the assault, they find a horrifying scene. The only injuries are to Barry's head and neck, and Barry's head is caved in. There's blood coming from every hole on Barry's face, including his eyes, his ears, his mouth, and Barry's eyes, they were black and puffy. And I'm talking about the inside of his eyeballs, where the white, where there should be white in your eye, that was all black. Now, while paramedics are tending to Barry, Glover arrives on scene. He wasn't wearing a shirt, but he had a white t-shirt slung over his shoulder and the rest of him was soaking wet. He started asking, oh, hey, hell, what's going on? What, what, what happened? And someone told him that Barry was throwing up real bad. Fisher followed the paramedics as they took Barry and then Fisher started yelling, no balls, no balls, no balls, let him die. And people describe that Fisher was acting real weird. Clearly, that's a weird statement to make especially when you don't want people to know that you had anything to do with the assault and subsequent murder. Once Barry arrived at the hospital, there was no brain activity and the doctors put Barry on life support to at least give his family the opportunity to say goodbye. After Fort Campbell leadership was informed about Barry, they quickly called Barry's mom, Pat, and she flew over with Wally to be by her son's side. She really wasn't aware of what actually happened, besides thinking that he got kicked in the head by a boot. When Pat walked in, now by the way, she's a psychiatric nurse, the Barry that she knew and the one that she saw was not the same soldier. Also, he did not look like he'd been kicked in the head with a boot. He looked like he had been trampled. Pat cried, what happened to her baby? She sat near his bed wondering why she ever, ever encouraged him to join the army. Pat was told that Barry was brain dead and had zero chance of recovering. 30 hours after Barry was bludgeoned to death by a brother in arms, Pat asked the doctors to pull the plug. Hi, everyone. For anyone who follows me on Instagram, I recently posted a picture of me with my kiddos at Disney in front of the Disney castle. 
but I posted it because my shoulders were looking on fire, defined, toned, and overall just pleasant to look at. So many of you asked me in my DMs for my secret. And of course, my secret is 4 a.m. workouts. But I get the oomph to wake up at 4 a.m. and work out from my pre-workout drink called Energy Explosion. My pre-workout powder was created by world-renowned fitness guru Natalia Melofit. I have been following Natalia for many years now. And in fact, after my second C-section, I hired her as my fitness trainer. And she also helped me postpartum with my third C-section as well. So when she came out with a pre-workout supplement that didn't cause any of the jitters and the crashing, I knew I needed to try it. Energy Explosion helps with energy, and it keeps me going all through the morning hours. Because I take it first thing in the morning, which is when I choose to work out, I no longer require that morning cup of joe. This pre-workout has nootropic ingredients, which significantly help me personally with mental clarity and focus. Which, listen, when you're juggling what feels like hundreds of tasks a day, it truly does help. And guess what? My listeners are getting 15% off your order. What? Yes, please. If you're ready to get the pump without the jitters, visit mbodysup.com and enter my code MAMAMARGO at checkout for 15% off your order. That's M as in Mike, body, sup as in Sierra, uniform, papa, papa, dot com. Add energy explosion to your car and use my code MAMAMARGO, that's M-A-M-A-M-A-R-G-O-T, for 15% off. Enjoy. And when you use it, please DM me so we can talk about your workouts. On the 4th of July, Calpurnia Adams sat in her dressing room preparing for the Tennessee Entertainer of the Year pageant. Calpurnia really, really wanted to win, and she was really sad that Barry couldn't be there for her, but she understood the pressures of military life and Barry's fear of getting kicked out due to the don't ask, don't tell policy. I mean, Calpurnia didn't think Barry was gay, and neither did Barry. But Calpurnia knew that she had a very Jerry Springer-esque lifestyle, and those are her words, not mine. Calpurnia knew military life oh too well, because she was once a sailor. Calpurnia Adams was born a male in Nashville, Tennessee. She always struggled with gender identity problems and she thought that she might just be gay. After a four-year stint in the Navy as a hospital corpsman, aka a medic, she left the military more sure of who she actually was. She landed back in Nashville's gay community and after a year of trying to live her life as a gay man, she realized she was born to be a woman. She was just stuck in a man's body. That's when she chose to change her name and she chose Calpurnia after Julius Caesar's wife and Adams from the infamous Adams family. Well, on July 4th, 1999, Calpurnia, ever the diva, slayed it on stage at the Tennessee Entertainer of the Year pageant and she won the crowd. It was such an amazing experience for her and she was over the moon. And she was even more excited to share the exciting news with Barry. But Barry would never learn of his love's amazing win. Because Calpurnia wasn't a part of Barry's emergency contacts, no one called Calpurnia and told her about Barry. She heard about it on the news and she was devastated. Now, Calpurnia does have a website, calpurnia.com. And I read her story about discovering what happened to Barry and then some of the aftermath. So if you're interested in that, I highly encourage you to go and read her story on there. Barry's murder and Calpurnia's story about Barry was eventually made into a 2003 movie called A Soldier's Girl, directed by Frank Pearson. Tom Garrity, Jane Fonda's son, played Barry, and Lee Pace played Calpurnia. 
I watched the movie, which is available on Amazon Prime. And the part where Calpurnia hears the news from the media and breaks down in her house. Well, that moment in the movie just really broke my heart. I can't even imagine being an adult and having to love someone in secret. You know that moment when you're in love and you have a Tom Cruise on Oprah Winfrey's couch moment and you just want to scream it from the mountaintops? Well, Barry didn't have that. He couldn't have that because of don't ask, don't tell. And well, Calpurnia couldn't have that either. But now that Barry was dead, Calpurnia began to remember all the weird things that happened throughout the last four months of them dating. Barry used to tell her all about Fisher's abuse and the name calling, but something stuck out to her. According to Rolling Stone, sometime in May before Barry was murdered, Barry was in his room one night fast asleep and he woke up to Fisher groping him. Some reports say that Fisher was tickling Barry's feet, but whatever. Barry jumped up and asked Fish what the heck he was doing and Fisher responded, oh, I'm sorry, I'm just drunk. Calpurnia had this information, but she didn't want to make matters worse for Barry's mom, Pat. So she decided to just let things be for now. Back at Fort Campbell, all the soldiers were called to formation front and center. Everyone was accounted for, except for Glover. They began their investigation and prosecutors and investigators were able to take notes on how far up the blood splatter went. According to prosecutor Captain Greg Angler, there was blood 13 feet across from where Barry's head was and eight feet up from where he was laying. After the investigation began, Calvin Glover was arrested on July 6th after investigators found blood-soaked clothes in his room. They also found some of Glover's bloody clothes in a nearby dumpster. After his arrest, Glover kept his mouth shut and didn't say a word. But while he was locked up, he confided in a jailhouse snitch that he couldn't quote, stand, end quote. According to a Time Magazine article, Glover also made up a story that he left the party because he was sick of Barry's homosexual passes. Then he ran into Barry again, and that's when he beat him up. Glover said he didn't mean to kill him. He just wanted to teach Barry a lesson. That was also part of another, like a different jailhouse snitch because he just has a big mouth. On July 8th, investigators brought in Fisher for questioning. And well, he sang like a canary so much for this days in the family. And he talked about the fight between Glover and Barry and talked about how much he taunted Glover about the fight. He even admitted that he told Glover to go for it that night. And when the interviewers offered him a polygraph, Fisher agreed. And the interview resulted in deceptiveness. And at the end of the interview, Fisher looked over at the interviewer and in typical Fisher manner asked, am I going to be arrested? And the answer was no, because it's the military. And unless they have a reason to believe that he's a harm to himself or others, a risk of committing another crime or a flight risk, then he's free to leave. However, it's not all terrible because 10 days after this interview, Fisher was caught up and taken into pretrial confinement. But that's 10 days too many. 10 days that he was walking around post a free man telling people to not say anything to CID. After the investigation, all things pointed to Glover being the bat swinger and Fisher being the instigator. So 18-year-old Glover was charged with premeditated murder and 26-year-old Fisher was charged with accessory after the fact of murder. The Article 32 hearings took place a little over a month after Barry's murder. Article 32 hearings are basically preliminary hearings where the prosecution lays out the minimum evidence required to prove that they have a case against the named perpetrators. And this was when Barry's family and the public really learned about the hell that Barry was living. 
The charges against each man were referred to a general court-martial and trials were scheduled to begin just a few short months later in December. When I first researched this case, I did a double take to make sure that I had the dates right. First off, murder investigations are lengthy, lasting over a year or more in some cases. But in this case, they were moving quickly. Now, 21 years ago, they didn't have all the high-tech testing that they do today, but this trial was still super duper fast, in my personal opinion. After the Article 32 hearing, the Service Members Legal Defense Network got wind that there was a case at Fort Campbell that smelled of discrimination against homosexuals. Remember, the military had a policy of don't ask, don't tell. But from all of my readings, most people considered it a don't ask, don't tell, but do harass policy instead of the policy it was intended to be. Glover's trial went first and it took place in December of 1999. Now, Glover's defense took an interesting approach to this trial. Glover was charged with premeditated murder and he pled guilty to unpremeditated murder. So when the trial began, the judge asked Glover a slew of questions under oath, which Glover answered to prove that he had murdered Glover. But according to him, it was unpremeditated. Once the judge accepted the guilty plea, then the burden shifted to the government, a.k.a. the prosecution, to show that Glover did in fact premeditate Barry Winchell's murder. By this point, Fisher had taken a plea deal and of course testified against Glover. More details on the plea deal later, I promise. The prosecution brought in Delta Company members who all agreed that nearly the entire company took to calling Barry names to his face and behind his back, specifically about being gay. Sergeant K testified that he heard the rumors and then he went on somewhat of a witch hunt himself to discover if one of his soldiers was actually gay. When he pinned it down to Barry, Sergeant K even recalled pulling Barry aside and saying, hey, are you gay? To which Barry responded, no. So the sergeant just left it at that. But on the stand, he acknowledged that he was aware of the military's don't ask, don't tell policy when he asked Barry if he was gay, which is a clear violation. Sergeant K also testified that he overheard a company first sergeant talking about Barry and the first sergeant said, quote, the f- has got a f- drinking problem and I'm going to do something about it, end quote. Sergeant K knew that this was wrong and he stated that he reported the incident to the inspector general and the company commander, yet he claimed nothing happened. The trial also revealed that Barry did in fact bring up the harassment to Captain Rouse and Captain Rouse just turned to the soldiers one day and told everyone to knock it off. In an ominous foreshadowing before Barry's murder, Barry confided in a friend that he felt the situation with the name calling and the harassment was so out of hand that he could feel that someone was going to get hurt. It would either be Fisher or himself. Glover's defense attorney was left without words when they discovered that Fisher had taken a plea deal. Now they realized that in their opinion, the government planned on railroading Glover. Glover's defense believed, yes, Glover was the weapon that killed Barry, but Fisher was the mastermind. But it was the army's position all along that this was not the case. Boys will be boys. And Fisher, even though he was egging him on, didn't, it wasn't about being gay. But the evidence revealed that Glover had drank close to 17 beers on the day of the murder. Glover hit Barry three to five times with the baseball bat, each blow as deliberate and targeted to the head and neck area as the last. Barry's wounds included a broken skull, a skull fracture that ran across his forehead, and lacerations to the brain caused by bone chips. 
Again, the defense argued, if Glover's intent was to kill, why stop at three to five blows to the head? If he was so mad about Barry's sexuality, why didn't he hit him 10, 20, 30 times? And the prosecution said, no, 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 no. He didn't have to hit him that many times. Three to five hits did sufficient damage, and it shows the restraint that Glover used in actually stopping. It did not take very long for the jury, which consisted of officers and enlisted members, to convict Glover of premeditated murder. During sentencing, Glover's upbringing was brought up as a way to say that he was so young and he really was impressionable. In fact, in what I imagine to be a shocking courtroom moment, the director of one of the youth shelters that he spent a lot of time at testified, and she looked over at Calvin and said, quote, I know you're not going to want me to say this, but I don't see, I just don't see how anyone can call you homophobic when you were sitting there painting your nails and fixing your hair, end quote. And maybe the jury did feel some sympathy for Glover. In the end, they sentenced him to a dishonorable discharge and life with the possibility of parole. Then he was sent to Fort Leavenworth. Glover, many years later, gave a few phone interviews, and he still cannot believe that he was convicted of premeditated murder. He compares his actions of swinging that bat onto Barry's head to punching a wall. Quote, you don't mean to do the wall any damage, end quote. Huh? Oh, also, Glover says the most shocking thing about getting life in prison is how it is announced in court. Quote, you are to be confined for the rest of your natural life. End quote. Recently, I covered two unsolved cases, which I am sure caused you to pause and analyze your inner detective. Well, if you want to hone in on that inner detective, then you need to check out June's Journey. June's Journey is a mobile game that you can play anywhere while connected to Wi-Fi. June's Journey takes you through the main character, June's, adventure to uncover family secrets. Her first task is to uncover the mystery of her sister's death. You will be using your keen eye to spot hidden clues in the immersive scenes that take you across the globe. The scene is set in the 1920s, so it's like going back in time. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game, and I love playing while waiting for my kids at the bus stop. It allows me to clear my mind from the tasks of the day and to refocus on my mommy duties. What I love about June's Journey is that not only are you searching for objects, but you can join other players online in a detective club. And then you also get to design this luxurious island estate that is all yours. And if you have friends who play, you can gift each other trees, flowers, and other amazing decorative items. Today, I invite you to escape reality and immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Go ahead, download June's Journey today. Fisher's trial began a few weeks later in January of 2000. Due to his plea agreement, the original charges were dropped and he was only convicted of two specifications of obstruction of justice, basically for cleaning the bat and a few other things that he did to hide the fact that he was involved. One specification for providing alcohol to a minor because he gave 18-year-old Glover alcohol and three specifications of false swearing, which is lying. Fisher presented his case to a military judge alone. Fisher testified in his own defense and basically admitted that he was afraid of his manhood. It's unclear if Fisher was admitting that he secretly had a crush on Barry. What was it? Was it that? Was he jealous because Barry stole Calpurnia from him at the Connections Bar? It's unclear and he never quite elaborates. 
Dr. Keith Caruso, a forensic psychiatrist, testified at Fisher's trial. And Dr. Caruso said that Fisher was sexually confused and curious. Dr. Caruso then dropped kind of an interesting bombshell. He said that ever since Fisher was 14 years old, he had secretly been wearing women's underwear. It's possible that Fisher was trying to gain sympathy points, but the judge sentenced Fisher to a dishonorable discharge and 14 years of confinement. But due to the plea agreement, his prison sentence was capped at 12 and a half years. Yep. Fisher, the reason Glover even thought Barry was gay, the 26-year-old who should have been more responsible, received only 12 and a half years, practically for murder. After the trial, Fisher petitioned to not be sent to Fort Leavenworth, probably because he was afraid to be in the same prison as Glover. But the military didn't give a rat's booty, and that's exactly where they sent him. Glover's case was sent up to the Army Court of Criminal Appeals, and Glover argued that the government didn't present enough evidence to prove that he premeditated the murder. But in November of 2002, the appellate court said, thanks, no thanks, so sad. Denied. The court pointed at actions that Glover took before the murder, during the murder, and after the murder, and coming up with the intent to murder. For example, prior to the murder, Glover told his roommate that he once beat down a for making a pass at him. According to Fisher, someone who cannot be trusted, in my personal opinion, but Fisher testified against Glover, saying that immediately before the murder, Fisher asked him how his face felt, and Glover said, quote, I want to bury up, end quote. During the murder, Barry's head was bludgeoned terribly, crushed so bad that it crushed his skull and the blood splatter was everywhere, reaching the ceiling. And afterwards, Glover tried to hide evidence of the murder by trying to fall in with the other crowd gathering around Barry and asking questions about what happened. Appeal denied. So at some point, the Southern Defense Legal Network got involved. Calpurnia heard the narrative the army was spinning about a fight gone wrong, and she knew she had to come forward with the truth to help save others like Barry before it was too late for them too. After the trial, Pat and Wally Catellis wanted to bury their son and let everything just be, but they reluctantly became advocates for the revocation of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And I say reluctantly, not because they did not believe in the cause, I say reluctantly because from the minute their son was murdered, they were thrust into the spotlight. And remember, they had no idea their son was dating a transgender woman. They had so many questions that the only person who could answer, he was no longer around. Pat always maintained that she didn't care who her son loved, though after speaking to Calpurnia personally, she was happy that Barry was so in love before he was murdered. Pat filed a civil suit for wrongful death against the army, but it was a moot filing because of the military's fairies doctrine. I won't get into it right now, but fairies doctrine is basically a policy that military personnel cannot file suit against the government under the Federal Tort Claims Act if the military is negligent. When you're in the business of war, people die. And I can see where it is important for the military to protect itself. But what I don't see is why that shouldn't just apply to war, like a war scenario. Well, 2020 brought about a new change for the fairies doctrine. According to the National Defense Authorization Act of 2020, now service members can file a claim in cases involving medical malpractice. Yes, it's still too early to see how this will play out, but this is a good start. 
I wonder if maybe I should cover the fairies doctrine sometime on my podcast, like the actual case or cases that created that uh, Supreme Court case. Well, we'll see. After lots of clamoring by the Southern Defense Legal Network and Pacatellis, the Army opened an investigation to see if the leadership at Fort Campbell created an environment of harassment for the LGBT community. After months of investigating, surprise, surprise, the people at the top, well, they walked away scot-free. The post commander even went on to obtain another star to add to his lapel. Don't Ask, Don't Tell continued strong for close to 12 more years after Barry Winchell's murder. But on September 20th, 2011, President Obama signed the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. He gave one of the pens he used to sign the law to Pat Catellis, and she had it framed. The Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy reigned strong for 17 years. And it is said that more people were discharged from the military in those 17 years for being gay than had been discharged for being gay before. It seems almost like a farce. The military used the don't ask, don't tell policy to give the community a false sense of security. After the repeal of don't ask, don't tell, many service members who were removed for homosexuality either before don't ask, don't tell or during the don't ask, don't tell era petitioned their military branches, board of corrections to have their service characterizations and narrative reason for separation changed in an effort to remove the stigma. A Soldier's Girl, the movie that I discussed earlier today, went on to win the Peabody Award in 2004. The Peabody Award honors the most powerful, enlightening, and invigorating stories in TV, radio, and online media. The movie was nominated in three Golden Globe categories, Best Made for TV Movie, Best Actor, and Best Supporting Actor. I read a story about Frank Pearson, the director of the movie, and he talked about being approached about the movie. When he heard about it, he turned it down. But over the following days, he kept thinking about Barry's story and something just bothered him so much that he realized this was the type of movie that needed to be made. This was a story that needed to be told. Wow, that's pretty amazing, right? Well, you're all probably wondering about the perpetrators in this case. Where are they now? Well, Justin Fisher was released from prison in the fall of 2006 after serving a little less than seven years of his 12 and a half year sentence. Everyone was furious. According to the Federal Bureau of Prisons website, Calvin Glover is still in jail and it seems like he's currently transitioning to kind of like a halfway house type thing. It appears that he will be released from prison on August 14th, 2020, after serving 21 years in jail. Glover is now 39 years old. Fisher is now 47. At Barry's funeral, Barry was remembered for the amazing soldier that he was. There, no one cared about Barry's sexuality. They only remembered him for being a great soldier. There was a 21-gun salute and all. At Barry's memorial service in Nashville, Calpurnia spoke. Behind her, four people held an American flag. For others held a rainbow banner a symbol of acceptance to the LGBTQ plus community. According to the New York Times, before Pat died, Barry's mom, Pat, remembered the suck and all the times that she wanted to give up fighting against Don't Ask, Don't Tell. But through the years of advocating for Barry, she heard her son's voice say, suck it up, mom, and drive on. What a story! I'm working on an earlier story of discrimination regarding homosexuality in the military before Don't Ask, Don't Tell. But I plan on telling that story on my friend's podcast, 
Simone and she runs 90s Crime Time. So be sure to follow me on social so you know when to expect that. You can find me on social on Instagram at Military Murder Podcast, on Facebook at Military True Crime, and on Twitter at Military Murder. So I just want to shout out and acknowledge someone who left the sweetest review for me. On Facebook, Chelsea B said that she loves the podcast, even though she's not a true crime junkie. What? Seriously? Those are my favorite words. Well, Chelsea, welcome to the dark side. (laughs) All right, everyone. This show was created and produced by Mama Margot Productions, and the music was created by TyOps. Please check out the show notes for a direct link to my sources page on my website, militarymurderpodcast.com. Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of, so remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week, and I'll keep digging to bring you another military murder story next week. Shh, let's work another podcast.